Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. All right, well, good evening, church. Again, if you could find your way to a seat, we will continue on together. My name is Bill Rydell. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is good to be able to worship with you, and so... Thanks for joining us on this beautiful spring Sunday afternoon with the sun shining as now it's beginning to set. Um, as we continue, we're going to continue on our series in the book of Revelation today. We have a long section in front of us. It's, it's gonna, I promise it's going to shorten after this. We're, we've had a couple of long sections in our own. We're about to slow things down again with shorter passages. But um, we're going to pray and jump right into what we have today in Revelation chapters 17 and 18. Father, thank you for your kindness to us in being able to gather together for worship. Thank you for the opportunity you give us to be able to utilize technology through this stretch when we're not all able to be together physically yet. Um, we pray that tonight you would stir our hearts and expose what needs to be exposed within us by your word. We pray that you would speak to us with clarity and help us in a passage with intense and vivid imagery to be able to see how it, it speaks to our lives now. And so we lift this time to you and our hearts to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Do you remember the, the Bible story about the Tower of Babel? Even if you didn't grow up going to church, that might be one that you, you've heard of or are familiar with, that, that after the flood, that God had given the same commands to, for, to his people to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And instead, we have this, this kind of strange story in Genesis of, uh, that, that becomes an origin story of where languages came from, that people instead gathered together and decided and said, let's build a city and let's make a name for ourselves and let's build a tower that reaches to the heavens. And, and so God confused their languages and, and people scattered from that place across the world. But that sentiment, the spirit of Babel, has continued through today, and it's something that continues, and we see it over and over and over again, and, and really it's influenced the founding of every major city since, including the, the, our own that we find ourselves in now, that, that every major city in human history has an underlying, really a spirit of, let's make a name for ourselves, let's make a difference, let's make an impact and an influence and do something great. Now, we've been studying Revelation together, and today we come to more powerful imagery that addresses the allure of the desirable aspects of our world and our city, and, and how we look for quick fixes to, to define our identity and, and to find satisfaction and fulfillment. But we'll see in the text that this world comes up empty every time, and it won't last. And so again, I'm going to read a big portion today. I'm going to read two full chapters and it is filled with vivid imagery of prostitutes and beasts and the downfall of Babylon. And my hope is that we will have the vision to see through the appeal of self-indulgence as we are confronted by this text. And so I'm going to read it, and then we'll see how it comes together. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. 
with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was, fi- that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her, head, on her forehead was written the, a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of, this, of the woman and the, of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also the seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages, and the ten horns that you saw... They and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. But God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and indetestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, and lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid others back, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed, as she glorified in herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow. And mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she'll be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her. They will see the smoke of her burning, and they will stand far off 
in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots, And slaves, that is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your your delicacies and splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and those whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? They threw dust on their heads and as they wept and mourned, crying, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour, she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and, and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more, and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more, and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of bride and bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more, and your, for your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery, and in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Does anybody else smell a campfire? That is a weird thing as I'm reading about the smoldering of Babylon the Great to give you the full sensory experience here as a church with the windows open tonight. Um, we didn't get that at the 9 a.m., so <laughs> that, is, that is something. All right, today's text, like I told you, it's vivid imagery, it's powerful imagery, it's difficult to understand, like some parts of Revelations, we're dealing with apocalyptic literature, but some of the symbolism, if you've been with us through this series, is going to be familiar, it sounded reminiscent, I'm sure. And so, as we were talking about this as a staff team this past couple of weeks, we decided to hold these two sections together, because really they are fit together. Now, at the beginning of chapter 17, we read that John was again in the Spirit. And that, that, that phrase appears four times in Revelation, in chapter 1, in chapter 4, and now in chapter 17, and later on in chapter 21. And so these are four major visions that John had along the way. And so this is the beginning of the third of the four visions. This third vision that John has is the section of Revelation that's talking specifically now where we've seen the series of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls that are a recounting of the last days of human history from Christ's ascension to his return and really the days that we're living in now. But as we come to 17 and following, we come now to final judgment. 
And so next week, we're only going to cover 10 verses. It's going to get much shorter, and we're going to see the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And so we see the other side of this day, of, of this final day, next week. And so it gets more fun from here. <laughs> but what we see today is important for us, and we can't skip through it quickly, but we, we need to see it fully. In these two chapters, what we, what we see put on display is the allure of this world and the allure, that, for many of us, of the city that we live in. And so we're confronted with, right from the start with this image of a prostitute, arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding a golden cup in her hand. And what are we to make of that? Well, I have three observations and four points of application for us tonight that we're going to roll through quickly. First, what, in, in the observations are seeing that this is trying to give us a portrait of the allure of the world that we live in that it's attractive. And the first observation is that indulgence is intoxicating. So who is this woman? Well, she's called the harlot or the prostitute, and she is Babylon, because we see later on that she is destroyed by the beast and those who follow it, and and is thrown down, and then it shifts the language of the fall of Babylon. And so this this is a type, it's a form, it's an image of the greatness of this world with all of its wealth and culture and power and, and all of its allure. It says that she's sitting, sitting on, on, might, on many waters, which is, is, uh, calls back to Jeremiah chapter 51, that there's power and allure over the nations here. And we see that later on as well, right? That, that the, pros- the waters that you saw in verse 15, where the prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So it's, it's clear here that, that there is a global appeal that is being discussed in what this prostitute has to offer. It talks about sexual immorality all over, but, but the immorality here that is pictured from the kings of the earth is not literally sexual intercourse. It, this is a metaphor that is used throughout Scripture to talk about idolatry. And so one theologian, Greg Beale, said, the intoxicating effect of Babylon's wine removes all desire to resist Babylon's destructive influence. It blinds people to Babylon's own ultimate insecurity and to God as the source of real security, and it numbs them against the fear, a fear of coming judgment. So this is what overindulging in actual wine can do to us, is is it can have an intoxicating effect with removing desires to resist our more destructive influences. Like nobody has ever said, hold my beer and had something good happen. And, and it, it can blind us to insecurity and sorts of real security in life and numb us to fear. And so this is biblical imagery that isn't, isn't removed from the realities of this world, but instead is describing it for us. And, and here what we're talking about, what it's talking about, is, is connected to a powerful reality and a powerful portrait of idolatry. God uses this language in, with his prophet Hosea. In Hosea chapter 4, where he says, They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. So you hear this is the same language of, of going to prostitution and drinking deeply of its wine, but look how it, what it describes that as. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. 
So in Hosea, this is powerful language to say that God's people had left and abandoned his covenantal love with, with them in order to go and pursue empty idolatry. And so now we come to this, this vivid language being used in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 to describe what this world has to offer us. And this is the thing. It is attractive, it is alluring, and it promises satisfaction and pleasure. And I think too often in churches, we have a tendency to rightly say, you will never be fully satisfied in pursuing the things of this world, and you will only experience full satisfaction in Christ. But we teach that in a way that that's the expectation for right here and right now. And what happens is that when you're pursuing Christ, it often means that you don't get the immediate quick fix and the quick payoff. And there is a reality that if you pursue things that you know God hasn't designed for you, that you know stand against even your own morals and ethics, but in the moment you think this will make me feel good now, it probably will. What this shows us is not that it won't feel good in the moment, or it won't be satisfying in the moment. It shows us that it is intoxicating in the moment. And I don't know what it is for you that calls out to you when we say things of this world, whether that's money and prosperity. None of us would mind a little extra stimmy. Whether it's achievement. My goodness, do we have an idol of achievement in D.C., how many people don't walk around with some sense of, maybe I'll get a memorial someday. It'll be a monument to me. I'll make a name for myself. It could be power, but we use, usually we won't admit to power. We would say influence. It could be your attractiveness, your physicality, your body image, and how desirable you are. Or it could be comfort and ease. You just want things to be easy, and you don't want to have to, you don't want to, have to suffer. None of those things is inherently bad or evil. It's not bad to want to be prosperous. It's not bad to want to achieve things. It's not bad to steward influence and power well. It's not bad to have someone find you attractive. It's not bad to have elements of comfort in your life. None of those is bad, but there's a problem when we look to them for our fulfillment and when our souls sell out to them as, as a statement of our identity. Because this, the intoxicating reality is there are these whispers to say that this world can offer us things that Christ never will come through on. It's no accident that, that the biggest marketing ploy of our, of our time is you're worth it. You've earned this. You deserve this. Come and spend your money on it. Exchange your youth, useless cash because you're worth it. And self-care and self-focus and self-indulgence are massive industries, and, and self-discovery and self-fulfillment are the highest values of our day. It's hard to square all of that with a Christianity that, is, as Jesus tells us, that God opposes the proud but exalts the humble. And it's hard to identify sometimes because, because we even put spiritual-sounding language on things and say, well, God is blessing me with this, or say, God hasn't called me to that kind of hardship. And, but God does call his people, but he doesn't call them like we think he does. You, when we think about, when I talk to most people and they want to know what is God calling me to, it's usually very, very specific and very practical, right? Is God calling me to this school or that school? This job or that job? This person or no person or that person? What is, you know, I want to know that answer. But when we see the language of calling, do you see this here, that, that even in verse 14, that is, is, 
it, sh- it says that Jesus, the Lamb, is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with him are who? Called and chosen and faithful. When God calls people, he calls us to be his children. He, it doesn't, it doesn't, he doesn't just call us in order to justify our, all of our desires as holy because we want things, that, but, but the things that this world offers us are alluring, and, and that's, again, the image of this prostitute. She's alluring. That's what, we're supposed to capture that, so don't jump too quickly in the narrative and see how ugly things get. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels in 17.4, and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup. But thank goodness it tells us more. Because you get too, before you get too caught up in it, you realize that in, in verse 3, she's sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And then it gives us a look into her cup, and in her cup are the abominations and impurities. And it goes on to say that, after, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And so before you drink too deeply and indulge desires too fully, it says, take a closer look because the rouge on her lips is not just makeup. It's blood. And the satisfaction that this world offers you is not giving life, it is taking it away. Don't be fooled by the golden exterior. It is filled with filth. And, and so our world is filled with a pervasive lack of satisfaction because the cup it offers is not filled with life-giving water but self-destructive indulgence. Think about how everything, everything we, in our lives is instant fix right now. I mean, it's, there's some reality that COVID restrictions have slowed a lot of that down. It's slowed our travel down. It's slowed some of our indulgences down. But we still have Amazon, <laughs> You know, I can, I can order a new iPhone and have it here by the end of the service. We can order stuff on Amazon, it'll be here. I mean, when it takes a full two days, I get frustrated and antsy. Because we don't know what it is to take time and be patient to this point. We, it's instant indulgence. Dating relationships have changed completely. And those of you who are single, I, I'm, I, I don't know how to navigate the waters that you are navigating if you're looking for a relationship. And I was talking with a friend this past week, and we were both so grateful that we did not come up in a swipe left and swipe right era, because I don't know that it would have gone great. But we're, we have this promise of a quick fix. Evaluating people at a moment's glance. Are they worthy of my time? Are they worthy of my pursuit? And in the midst of it, we are more isolated and lonely than ever before. And so the woman is sitting on a scarlet beast. It's the first beast. We've talked about this, that the two beasts that we see back in, in chapter 13 are anti-God authority and anti-God ideology and this that has been pervasive throughout history but also will come to its fulfillment and conclusion in the end. And so this is everything that our city whispers to us is make a name for yourself, be somebody, make a difference. And what we don't realize until we're too deep into it is that everyone here hears the same whispers and that's what makes it so cutthroat. And that we won't be able to control it all in the end and and we'll either have to sacrifice what we believe ourselves to be in order to get to the next step and achieve what we want most or we'll be destroyed by those who are willing to compromise everything to move forward. And in the end... Even this prostitute, Babylon the Great, in the end, is destroyed. 
That leads us to the second observation, is that indulgence is intoxicating, and second, indulgence leads to bondage. It's slavery. Anti-God desires lead to pursuits and behaviors that lead to authority and a demand to comply, and it has been true all along that the kingdoms of our world demand compliance. We see this today, that to hold a sexual ethic that is different than our world is to be branded hateful. To use any nuance that doesn't fit the binaries of our society means that you're outside of it and you are labeled a bigot. And this world will come to hate and despise those that, the things that can't satisfy it. And we know this, that everything we idolize comes up empty in the end. Now think about, your, about jobs. How, is the job you're in something that you had to work for and try to achieve? Because if it is... If you're anything like me, or if I know my own heart, I know that there have been times when you get into something that you work for, and you go to school for, and you finally get there, and it's only a matter of time before it's just not everything you thought it was going to be. This is the story of every Capitol Hill staffer that has ever come through Redemption Hill Church in the last 10 years. Politics are a good thing that can be stewarded well for human flourishing, And you go to school, and you're the best and brightest from your hometown, and you go to college, and you get your political science degree or international relations, and people say, what are you going to do with that degree? And you're like, I'm going to Washington. You have dreams about what it's going to be like to walk through the halls of Congress and the halls of power and the proximity to that, and you get weird, rude wake-up calls when even people in D.C. say, who are you working for? And they don't know the name of your member. It comes up empty. And as it does, you'll end up despising it. It happens in relationships. When we have somebody that we've held up on a pedestal and we get to know them and get too close and we end up hating them. It happens with us physically. That if you have body image issues, you will never get to the point that you feel like you're satisfied and you'll end up despising the body that you live in. Indulgence will lead you to slavery. And the third observation is that this world and all, of it, all that it offers will not last And this is the message of chapter 18. As a whole, it's showing us that everyone is devastated. And this is where things get haunting. Babylon the Great, I think, is I've thought about this in the past, and I picture, like, anti-God authority and ideology, and we've talked about this all the way through, that, that we picture, like, wicked regimes that we can identify and say, this is wrong. And so we look back at history and picture those regimes and, and celebrate that they have fallen and say it's good that the Third Reich was destroyed, and it's good. And now we could look ahead and say, like, we, you know, it'd be good, a good thing for ISIS to fall, for North Korea to fall. These, are, these would be good things, but because it's obviously wicked and it's obviously wrong. But do you see the response of the people of Earth in chapter 18? That's why this is where it gets haunting. The whole world is sent into mourning. The kings of the earth weep and wail. Alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. The merchants of the earth, so it hits political and power sectors, it hits financial sectors, the merchants of the earth, and this extended list of the luxuries of earth, is alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. 
The global economy is hit as all shipmasters and seafarers and tradesmen off the sea cry out, what city was like the great city? And they go into mourning, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich in her wealth. For a single hour, in a single hour, she has been laid waste. And then look at how it goes on in the description in verse 21. So Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flute players, and trumpeters will be heard no more. Craftsmen in any craft, the sound of the mill, the light of a lamp, the voice of bridegroom and bride. And it, so what we have a description of here is that the world is in mourning as, as the symbol and expression of power, prosperity, wealth, extravagance, luxury, art, culture, and love is destroyed in a moment. When you live in a nation that is one of the richest global powers that has ever existed, this hits close to home. So how do we live in Babylon? Well, this isn't an unfamiliar question throughout Scripture either. And so this is where we move toward four points of application. Living in Babylon first, be faithful to Christ. Back in 17, verse 14, you have this description as the angel is describing and explaining what's happening and the powers of the beast and, and as they take advantage of everything that the city or that the world has to offer. They gather together and they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Make no mistake. And those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Well, in that description, there's only one of those that we have any impact on. If God calls us and chooses us as his own, then our calling is to be faithful. And it goes on to, to show us what it looks like to be faithful with Christ as we live in Babylon. And so in that, the second point of application for us is resist the seduction of quick satisfaction. That's what it means to be faithful to Christ. In chapter 18, it says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And so there's this call, come out of Babylon. This makes me think of James chapter 4, where James says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so what does it look like to come out of Babylon? What does it look like to overcome the struggle of, the, of, of self-indulgence? Well, it's resisting the, the, quick, the, the seduction of quick satisfaction. Remember, this is something that I, you may not have caught that, that really only struck me late in the week this week. That in 17.3... John, it says that John, John says, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. There's something striking to that in that, because if you remember chapter 12, chapter 12 is this imagery of a woman and a dragon, and Satan is pictured as a great red dragon pursuing the people of God, trying to destroy them, and, and that, it's, that God protects his people and protects the woman where? It's out in the wilderness. 
Here, John is brought into the wilderness to be able to step out of the seduction of this world for a moment, to be able to see things with greater clarity. And I think it was God's protection for him. You see, throughout Scripture, the wilderness, while it feels bad to the people that are in it, it's actually the place of God's provision and protection for people. And so, and so John here is able to clearly see things because he was brought into the wilderness and the desert, desert place. There's a lesson for us here that we've got to stop hating and despising the dry and lonely places because it may be God's protection for us. We have a tendency, I have this tendency, to think of, of the circumstances in my life as God's commentary or a commentary on God's pleasure with me. And so when things are hard, when, things, when I'm experiencing pain, when things aren't going my way, and I would say, like, I'm in the desert, I, my tendency is to go, like, what have I done wrong, God? Not realizing that it may be his protection for me. And don't forget that Jesus was led by God's spirit out into the wilderness, into the desert for 40 days before he was confronted by temptation from Satan himself. That wasn't Satan meeting Jesus at his weakest. That was Satan meeting Jesus after 40 days of close communion with his father. And so the desert place can be God's protection for us. And as, we, as you mature in understanding what it means to be faithful to Christ and resisting the quick fix of satisfaction, eventually you may even choose some of the desert, like Jesus who craved time alone in his Father's presence, knowing that no matter how alone you feel, God will never turn his face away from you. But the temptations we face to find our comfort and identity and security and wealth and materials, there has never been greater in any time in human history. So part of being faithful to Jesus is reducing that quick fix. And also then, rejoice that the end is coming. That's the third point of application. Rejoice that the end is coming. Do you see this in verse 20? Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. Why? For God has given judgment for you against her. Now, I don't think this rejoicing is harsh or vindictive or uncalled for. This isn't grave dancing. This isn't gloating over the judgment that's happening. But remember the imagery of Babylon. Well, for God's people, Babylon has very specific connotations. It's rooted in the story of Babel that we started with, but then Babylon was where God's people were put into exile. The only hope that the Israelites had that they might get home safely and come back into the land that God had promised them was that Babylon would fall. And the fall of the kingdoms of this world means that the way is cleared for God to bring the new Jerusalem for us. Now, this is a little, a little preview as we look ahead that you need to see this in context, that there's the allure of the prostitute in, verse, in chapter 17 and 18. And then in, verse, in chapter 21, listen to what, it, what the description is of what is being prepared for those who are in Christ. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Now, through most of the New Testament, the church is described as a bride, and we're going to talk about that next week when we see the wedding feast of the Lamb, but here, it's a bride in all of her splendor and purity that has been prepared to be delivered to God's people. 
the imagery here is, is so rich for us to understand that, yes, you, are, you have the ability to go and have a fling with the, with the allure and the attractions of what this world has to offer you, but don't do it if it gives up your ability to step into the heavenly city in the end, into God's presence and rest for eternity. And when we see the downfall of this world, it's not just celebration because, for celebration's sake, saying, ah, they really got it. It's saying that we know in order to come to the point where God himself dwells with his people again, when there is a new heaven and a new earth, a new reality where God himself is wiping the tears from your eyes and death is no more, that for that to happen, the kingdoms of this world need to fall first. And so don't sell out when something better is coming. And the biggest question every one of us faces today is which city are you living for? Are you living for the glory of Babylon and to make a name for yourself? Or are you living for the glory of the new Jerusalem in the presence of Christ forever? And so, be faithful to Christ. Resist this seduction of a quick satisfaction. Rejoice that the end is coming. And fourth and finally for tonight, keep living for the good of others. Again, this language is important and it's not unfamiliar in Scripture. In Jeremiah chapter 29, the prophet was writing God's words to his people. And it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I, I love this passage. You can just leave it on the screen for a minute. Because... First of all, God owns the fact that he sent them into exile. It starts off with him saying, hey, I know you don't like where you are right now. This is exactly where I've put you. And while you're there, while you're in the city that becomes the biblical archetype for everything wicked, uh, do whatever you can for its good. Build homes. Cultivate God's good earth. Plant a garden and grow things. Keep having kids and celebrating weddings. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. It's the creation mandate. And, and by the way, uh, seek its welfare, its shalom, its healing, its wholeness, its peace, its justice. Seek the good things for the place where I've sent you because if it's good there, it will be good for you as well. Now, in case you think I'm just drawing on some Old Testament prophetic text, Peter takes this exact language and applies it to the church. When he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, or the word there is ethne, so the nations. Keep your conduct among the nations honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you, do you hear what Peter is saying? Peter here summarizes Revelation 17 and 18 for us. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Don't fall into the allure of what this world has to offer you. Instead, live your life so well that on the day of visitation, when this place is nothing but a smoldering ruin, other people have joined in the song of the redeemed because of your lives. 
And so he calls on the language and the, and the principles of Jeremiah saying, yes, you're in exile right now. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are in exile. And, live, and the calling we have is live so well that others turn. And so keep living for the good of others. And so this is part of why we plant churches. It is, we highlighted Acts 29 Network and our work there and our work with our denomination, the EFCA, and we, we are a church planting church. And part of the reason we keep planting churches in the midst of Babylon is because these, every church that is planted becomes an outpost for light and rest for gospel exiles. And if you're a Christian and you can live in a major city, then do it. Now, every place is important. God has work everywhere. But a lot of churches try to keep convince people to go to where God might call them, and we're going to send people out to where God might call them. Here in D.C., I feel like it's, it's harder to convince some of you to stay. And so some of you might be called to stay and invest your lives in a place like D.C. Why? Because major cities have a greater need for Jesus. That's not... That's not a statement of value. That's just simply saying there's a reality that there's more people here, which means there's more brokenness here, which means that there are less churches per capita here, and we have a greater need for Jesus to come and transform this place. And and cities have a greater opportunity for gospel witness because there's greater influence culturally. But it's also more tempting because everything you could ever desire and everything you could ever want can be indulged as you walk out the doors tonight. So the question is, which city are you living for? Did you come to D.C. or have you grown up in D.C. and all you want to do is get everything you can, can get out of it and make a name for yourself to build your resume and then bounce? And don't you realize that no follower of Jesus can live that way? Indulgence is intoxicating and you might get the quick fix that you're after, but it'll also enslave you and it won't last. What we see in Revelation is that Jesus is building a city Yes, the story of Scripture started in a garden, but it ends in a new city, a new Jerusalem, as, as heaven comes to earth. And he's building this city that o- turns over the power structures and, and ethics of this world, and he will kill death itself and suffering and sorrow along with it. And from this point in Revelation, it, it takes a turn, and we begin to see the reality of that celebration and the eternal city on display. But as we do, we're confronted for, for one last time here with the question, what is it that you're building your life on? What is it that you're investing yourself into? Is it making a name for yourself, or is it joining Jesus in his work and doing something greater? Yes, it'll be harder now, but it's worth waiting for. With that, let's pray. Father, we need your help on this because we're impatient people. We take the easy way so often. So we ask tonight that you would forgive us, that you would show us areas in our life where we might be seeking the cheap thrill of making a name for ourselves rather than, than resting in the glory of Christ. So I pray that your spirit would give us freedom today. You would open our eyes to be able to see through all of the allure and see that it takes life rather than giving it. 
And to trust that when Jesus offers living water, it'll become a spring within us from a well that'll never run dry. That you will sustain us even when it feels like we're walking through a desert. And so we thank you for your love for us and your kindness to us that's been shown ultimately in Jesus Christ who died in our place for our sin and was raised to life and ascended where he rules and reigns as the King of kings and the Lord of all lords. We pray today that you would turn our hearts in worship and adoration and that you would give our souls rest. We pray this in the name of Christ, our hope. In his beautiful name.